welcome back to Best Book Forward, the podcast where I talk to authors about the books that have shaped their lives. Think of it as like Desert Island Discs, but the bookish version. In today's bonus episode, I'm joined again by Matt Kane. In the main episode, we talked about Matt's new novel, One Love, which I loved. It's a wonderful read and it's out this month. Today, we'll chat more about Matt's life as a reader and a writer and talk about how he overcame the rejection he faced when he tried to publish his first novel. We'll also find out a really wonderful bookish secret from Matt. Matt, welcome back and thank you so much for joining me for this special episode today. It's my pleasure. I'm afraid we've got a lot of background noise, but we'll have to work with it. I say we're going to be playing Guess the Noise throughout, aren't we? Whether it's my Roddy or your builders. Well, I can tell you the house opposite, um, a week after we moved in, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning because my husband was snoring and forgot to take his spray and um, saw through the window that the house was on fire. Oh, my gosh. And... It was literally like being in a film or something, almost kind of the weird feeling was enhanced by the fact that it was four o'clock in the morning and I was half asleep. And I dialed 999 and um, reported um, this house going up in flames. I knew there was nobody in it, I should say, because mm. it had just been done up. And uh, But the house next door, we'd met the people there and the flames were spreading. So at four o'clock in the morning, I dialed 999, went banging on this house, a total stranger. The family came running out in their underwear and dressing gowns. And then before we knew it, there were six fire engines and 45 firemen <laughs> and putting it out, all coming into our house to use the loo. And um, now, and, you know, it was all very dramatic and we can talk about it in a light-hearted way because there was nobody in there, so nobody was um, hurt. But now there is a building site opposite, I'm afraid, and there may be the occasional sound of drilling and whatever coming from it. We've already had a tour of your house, haven't we, as we've been trying to find the quiet spots. (laughs) And we came to the conclusion there is no quiet spot in this house. That's fine. We will persevere through, so... (laughs) So the last time in the main episode, we talked about your wonderful new novel, One Love, um, as well as chatting about your Desert Island books. And if you've missed that episode, there will be a link in the show notes. You can find it there. But today I'd like to find out more about your life as a reader and a writer. And you've told me the most wonderful bookish secret, which I cannot wait to chat with you about at the end. But before we start, I would love it if you could treat us to a little introduction and a reading from One Love. I would love to. Um, I've looked at this book and I think the pro- I'm going to I'm going to read you the prologue because uh, there's some scenes that are quite long and involved and the timeline jumps around and I don't want to give anything away. But this is probably the best thing to give you a taste. So this is in 2002. With Guy at his side, Danny walked along Princess Street until he arrived at the bottom of Canal Street. They paused in front of a pub called the New Union, outside which a huddle of men in faded jeans and lumberjack shirts were dancing to its raining men, cigarettes dangling from their mouths and pint glasses sloshing beer onto the cobbles, while a pyrotechnically drunk drag queen in a synthetic blue wig was attempting to pole dance on a lamppost. So this is it, Danny said to Guy, his eyes fixed on the scene ahead. This is the gay village. 
As they stepped onto Canal Street, a couple of middle-aged men strolled past, holding each other's hands and giving them a little swing. Danny had never seen two men holding hands before, at least not in real life, and certainly never in public. He resisted the urge to give a little jig of excitement. All that time he'd spent in his hometown, dreaming of a better life, dreaming of the person he could be if he could just get to Manchester, if he could just find his people. And now, finally, it's happening. Adrenaline fired through his body. He turned to face Guy. Come on, shall we do it? Guy felt his body tingle with fear. I don't know, he said, just give me a minute. He watched as a drag queen in a blue wig staggered across the street, leaned over the wall and threw up into the canal. One of the men in lumberjack shirts rushed over to rub her back while his friends raised their pint glasses and gave her a cheer. It was much more boisterous than Guy had expected, much more in your face. He felt a tug in his gut. Look at these people, he thought. They're my people. He felt conflicted. On one hand, it was as if some kind of invisible force was pulling him forward, drawing him in. At the same time, he wanted to turn on his heel and run right back to his student bedroom, to shut the door behind him and pretend he'd never even attempted to go out on the gay scene. Remember, everyone's at that 90s night in the Union, Danny reassured him. So nobody will see us, or at least nobody we know. There was a pause. It'll be just you and me, he added. Guy ran his hand along the inside of his collar. It's just me and Danny, he thought. Suddenly, it didn't feel too bad. He yanked in a breath. Come on, let's do it. Woo, that's it. I love listening to <laughs> authors read their books. And that's such a great uh, taster of it, because knowing how these two characters go on, uh, you're in for a real treat. It's such a fabulous read. I loved it. Thank you. And the universe, or whoever we believe in, was on our side because there was no drilling for Yay! that whole reading. <laughs> now it's just going to be for the rest of the episode, though, isn't it? <laughs> I know. So we recorded the main episode back in November, and then with like Christmas chaos and everything, it kind of got sidetracked. So we're now uh, recording this just a week before One Love comes out into the world, which is very exciting, and uh, make sure you pick up your copy. But since we spoke in November, there's something that I've been sort of thinking about a lot from that conversation was we talked about rejection and how you crowdfunded for your first novel, uh, The Madonna of Bolton which was obviously a huge success, but it must have been incredibly difficult for you to go through that. And so thank you for persevering, because I do believe the world needs your beautiful novels and I need them to keep coming to me. But <laughs> it did you. leave me with a couple of questions, Matt. And I wondered, what was it or who was it who kept you going through that process and you know, making you follow your dream to become published? And if there was somebody who listening to this today who's had their work either rejected or criticised, what advice would you give to them? Oh, good questions. So, um, first of all, I've often had resistance to who I am and had to persevere and fight through it. So I'm quite tenacious and driven and um, I'm quite good at believing in myself and trusting in myself. Um, and I, I also felt that there was a kind of injustice that... Um, I was being rejected for the wrong reasons, for um, unfair reasons, and I wanted to prove a point. I wanted to um, 
I wanted to change publishing. And I think I did um, feel I was on a mission almost. Um, but also, who got me through? I was single at the time and I was very much a lone ranger. I was in a job that was quite lonely with no allies. Um, but I'm lucky to have some really great friends and people I've worked with in the past. And everybody rallied round. It was really touching, actually. Um, I, it was easier for me because I did have a social media presence and I did write articles and I had been a journalist for years. So I could go to The Guardian with my rejection letters and kick up a stink. And I did have lots of contacts amongst celebrities I'd met through Editing Attitude. Um, so um, everybody rallied around, whether it was professional contacts who could let me write for them um, while the crowdfunding campaign was underway, or even friends from school I'd not seen for years. Um, other authors, people like David Nichols, Lisa Jewell, um, contributed. I'd never met either of them at the time, I don't think. If you look at the names at the back, David Walliams. Oh, wow. Um, David Williams, who I had met, some amazing authors um, helped me, and I'm sure I'm missing out some names of some brilliant ones now, um, which makes me feel bad. But um, so that kind of kept me going because I thought, you know, in terms of feeling the injustice and that I was trying to right a wrong, the fact that I was backed up mm -hmm. by a lot of people. Um, Adele Parks, I think she helped out. You know, I think the fact that I was backed up um, made me feel um, like I wasn't just being daft. It made it easier to believe in what I was doing. Mm. Um, I mean, it was, you know, I have to say it was, um, I did have this position editing attitude and I did think you do get enemies in those kind of roles. And um, I did think there'd be people who'd be laughing and scoffing and saying, oh, he's obviously just crap. And um, his book's been rejected because he's crap, serves him right. You know, I thought there's potential for humiliation. Um, but I do think with that book, I don't know if I said to you before, I think part of the reason it did well was because everybody was behind it and everybody was outraged at the journey it had had to go through. And if I had actually um, been given a deal during the 10 years I was trying to get it published mm. from a publisher who probably wouldn't have been that committed, wouldn't have put the resources behind it, it may not have done as well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I've been talking for ages. I'll come back to you so you can ask me the next question again. And then <laughs> people don't get sick of the sound of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all, that's really interesting, though. But so you always, you always knew that this is the one you wanted to go for. You you believed in it, and it's great that you did have people backing you. And any of the negative voices would have been drowned out. And um, but I was thinking, like when we talked last time about um, the Song of Achilles, and you're saying how publishers were saying that straight women wouldn't be interested, and that sort of stayed with me as well since our last conversation. Of like, I find that just really hard to believe because you know, as we said. I just want to read really good love stories or stories of characters who I care about. So, yeah, well done you for fighting back. Well, also, it's so patronising. I felt offended on behalf mm. of straight women, you know, my straight female friends. It's so patronising to them, mm. actually. So patronising to them that they'll only read one kind of book or they won't be open-minded enough mm. um, to read this kind of book. I kind of... I did feel outraged, actually. And... Um, 
like I was on a mission and having everyone's support made it easier to stick to that mission, mm. um, even though it was a bit lonely at times. Also, I should say, um, it did only take a week, um, oh. which was brilliant. It might have been... You know, because for a week you can go into kind of, what do they call it? All these Instagrammers who are always doing gym pics. You go into beast mode. You go into warrior mode. And um, you can do that for a week. If it had gone on for three months, you mm. you would have dips in that. Um, so, yeah, and it's amazing when I think about it now that somebody mm. like David Walliams and Lisa Jewell and David Nichols pledged... Um, money to support me and, you know, and came out in support. Um, they'd obviously all thought that there was a wrong that needed writing. Mm. And it made me think, oh, I'm not being daft. So, yeah. oh, I'll tell you what you asked me. What you advice? asked about advice. Mm. Well, so the one thing I will say, I don't know if I'd said this to you the other day, but, um, you know, I'd say that it was 10 years that I was sending that book out, and it was. But I suspect at the beginning, well, I know at the beginning, it wasn't anywhere near as good as it became in the end. And um, when I was given feedback, the ones that weren't just telling me, oh, it's not commercial because it's about a gay man and nobody wants to read about a gay man. Some people actually said, look, I'm, some editors said, something along the lines of, look, I really like this book, I really believe in it, and I do think the, the theme of exploring the emotional support music and popular culture can give you at um, difficult times of your life is a good one, but I'm not going to be able to get it past the sales team, the marketing team, the commercial side of the publisher. And they gave me advice, and I followed it. And actually, I do think it can be, when you're getting a kicking... It can be easy to go inside your shell. But what I would say is um, try and be brave enough to look at all the feedback. Is there anything in there that you could actually learn from and would make your book better? And I basically, yeah, there were times when I couldn't bear to go back to my manuscript because it was all too painful. But occasionally, well, quite a lot, I did go back and rewrite it based on what I'd been told. I remember somebody, for example, said to me, the trick is to get the female friends right. Get those female friends right. Work on them, boost them, deepen their emotions. And I did. Um, somebody else said to me, well, I can't remember where this came from. I think I made the decision based on what people had said. Some people commented, it was originally called Madonna and Me. Some people commented on the hometown element as being another universal that could cut through and resonate with people. Mm. And um, I really built up, there's a chapter towards the end, The Power of Goodbye, which was one of the last ones that I wrote. I really built up the hometown element and obviously changed the name to the Madonna of Bolton, the title. Um, so that was responding to what I'd been told. So I guess this is a really rambling way of saying, um, keep believing in yourself, but do ask, is there anything I can be doing to make this better? Mm. That's what I'd say to anybody in mm. that position of having to fight. And rage is kind of a powerful uh, emotion, isn't it, to, to spur you on. But I think that's really interesting because I guess when you've spent so long writing something and you feel for your characters, it must be quite hard when people are making, you know, recommendations to improve. So it's learning to be open to that criticism without sort of taking it to heart. Which I well, guess somebody, quite hard. Yeah, 
yeah, you've got to not take it personally and um, and try and be um, business-like and cut through the emotions. Somebody once said to me when I worked in telly, um, another brilliant mentor, friend and supporter, he used to be my boss um, at ITV, she said, if somebody tells you there's something wrong with this in a programme, the reasons they give and the solutions they suggest may not be right, but it will always mean it's worth having a look at that section again. Mm. You know, um, the fact that they've identified something's not working always means you should have. So you do have to kind of read between the lines and think around a comment that you might have been given. But yeah, if you know, I knew, I knew so many people, this theme of music giving you emotional support through difficult times of your life. I know so many people who'd said to me, when I told them what the book was about, you know, that they'd listen to the Smiths constantly when their parents were getting divorced or whatever, I knew there was something in that, actually. Mm. You just have to look at the whole nostalgia industry and um, artists touring greatest hits sets from the 80s. You know, um, I knew there was something in that. And... You know, sometimes publishers just couldn't... They don't always get popular culture, people working in publishers. So, and I do get that. Mm. So, yeah. That's really interesting. It moves it on to the music in your books. So many times throughout your books, you there'll be maybe a Kylie or Madonna that pops up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard that song in ages and I have to go and listen to it. And you do have some great tunes throughout all your books. So... I know that when you're writing, you're really disciplined. You come off social media and really concentrate. But given how music is almost like a character in some of your books, do you mm. listen to music while you're writing or not? Oh, that's a really good question. So when I was growing up, so when I was growing up, you know, I talked in the past about my working class background. I went to a comprehensive. It, it wasn't the place where intelligence was celebrated. People didn't go around talking about a wonderful book they'd read or a classic they'd read by Jane Austen. You couldn't do that. You'd get beaten up, especially if you were a boy. It's true. Mm. Uh, what everybody did talk about in the north of England in a working-class community in the 80s was music. And um, I always read, I was always a big reader, but um, pop music was my thing, my escape, um, my outlet for all kinds of emotions I was feeling. And... Um, Oh, I've drifted. I've forgotten what your question was, Helen. <laughs> Do you listen you to ask? music while you're writing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's always been very linked to mood, to emotions for me. And um, I do listen to a certain type of music when I'm writing a book. And it was interesting. I did a play. Obviously, the Madonna of Bolton, it was all Madonna. I did a playlist on Spotify for Becoming Ted. And they were all very much female voices kind of gay anthems, but by the kind of strong women that we admire and look up to, um, empowerment anthems. And um, when I was, I've just put together a playlist for this that I've not shared yet. For but, One Love? Um, for One Love. Oh, good. Um, so I listened constantly to, so the book set 2002 to 2022, I listened to the music that I'd listened to when I was growing up from a slightly earlier period, but all um, 
gay men's voices. I listened constantly to Pet Shop Boys, Communals and Jimmy Somerville, and Erasure. And then I did also work in some years and years to bring it up to date. And I've done a playlist of that, and it does set my mood music. What I tend to do is I wake up in the morning and I go to the gym, um, and I don't do anything particularly taxing. I just roll, and I'll go on a cross train, and I'll go on the bike. Um, and I listen to music that's mm. going to get me in the right mood. And I'm quite, I am regimented, but I, my concentration tends to go after about an hour. So after an hour, I'll put on a couple of tracks, blast them out, sometimes put a wash on, I'll take the washing out and put it in the tumble dryer, you know, load the dishwasher, that kind of thing. <laughs> the glamorous um, life. <laughs> yeah, totally. The, the, yeah, the mundane um, details of everyday life. But... Um, I always have music on full blast and it always, it was a particular type of music. I'd actually say um, in the acknowledgements to One Love, I don't think they were in the advanced reader copies, the proofs, um, but you'll see it in your final copy. I say that actually, I don't think I could have written this book It's if it weren't for the Pet Shop Boys. It's as much there book as it is mine <laughs> and it, it literally is i listened to them constantly when i was writing it and bearing in mind i wrote it for four and a half years on and off <laughs> you can go mastermind as your specialist subject the musical i know, <laughs> I, know. I love that i think it's it's so uh i mean i guess it's sort of basis of my podcast like Desert Island Discs I love how music can sort of bring you back to places and sort of stir memories and things I always enjoy it in your books when something pops up and I'm like oh my gosh I love that song and I'll have to go and listen to it then before reading it so I think it's well that's that is literally what um the Madonna of Bolton is about yeah. I mean I stripped it back to one artist but it is about how music can take you back and um set my memories firing can help you feel emotions that you were feeling for the first time in a particular um, situation. So, yeah, absolutely, all of that. Perfect. So, Matt, you've had a really interesting journey to becoming the much-loved author that we have here today, from magazines, TV, radio, and all sorts of other jobs. If we were to imagine that your life story had been written, it was an instant bestseller and was about to be made into a movie... Who would you have wanted to have written the book and who would play you in the movie? I know that's a mean question, but I'm just so interested. <laughs> it's not mean at all. Um, there are a few actors I think are great. Somebody called Sam Barnett, who did the audio book for Becoming Ted, mm. um, I think is brilliant. There's an actor called George McKay who played the lead role in Pride. Um, the film about lesbians and gays support the miners and the mining strike, the miners strike. He was great. Um, I'd say somebody um, like that. And who would write it? Um, well, David Nichols is interesting because obviously he's had a big impact on me as I we talked about one day last mm. time. Um, but he also writes films and TV adaptations. So possibly um, David Nichols. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, I've, I've had film deals for books before that have never come to anything. And they always ask, you always talk about writers, and they always ask um, whether you want to write it yourself. And I never know when they ask that which answer they want. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I do remember years ago a writer saying to me that they'd spent so much time writing film adaptations and TV adaptations for their own novels that had never happened. Um, they actually wished they'd just wrote another book. Mm. Um, and I kind of feel like I, I get a bit obsessive and I put everything into a book and then I put it to one side and move on. And um, I, I've i always said, because I had such a horrendous time getting going and had to battle through all the negativity, the idea of trying to master another art form now, I'm not sure I've got it in me. So um, I always think I'd leave it to somebody else, but I would want to know who that was and... Um, and actually, with the film of Albert Entwistle, which, as far as I know, isn't happening at the moment, but when the producer introduced me to some writers, and I'd, and I'd never met them, one of them I hadn't heard of, but they talked to me about the book and their ideas for it, and one of them in particular won me over. So I kind of think I'm, not, I'm almost not qualified to judge. I'd want a producer who knows their stuff... Um, to say to me, this is the writer, trust me, this is the writer who will make it work. And that's probably, I'd probably take soundings, yeah. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Oh my gosh, Albert Entwistle would be fabulous to see. It must be hard though, I think. I think you'd have to really look at them as two different, I mean, I was just messaging somebody before we came on about one day actually about the new um, show that's coming. She was like, I don't know if I can watch it because I love and I, was like, I think you have to start to think of them as different things like yeah. the book will always be better but it's a it's a different thing isn't it based on what you love yeah and um actually something like Albert Entwistle structurally um would work as a film but something like the Madonna of Bolton they would have to rip it apart and put it back together again mm. and that almost makes it easier um, with Albert Entwistle, interestingly, the producer who was going to do it made a big suggestion that they were quite nervous about telling me about because they weren't sure what I'd think. Um, the suggestion was to age him up by 10 years so that he's 75 rather than 65. He's clung on to his job um, through various attempts to pension him off, but now through ill health or basically getting frailer they are succeeding in imposing enforced retirement on him. And actually, their reasons were that 65 on screen doesn't look that old, mm. isn't that old anymore. Mm. And um, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 2 had been 60 and hot. <laughs> and um, I don't imagine Albert Entwistle would have been hot. But, and they said it may be more poignant if you make him older. And then it means that his affair with George would have happened before legalisation, so there would have been mm. extra jeopardy. And I was like, great, love it, fantastic. Um, and I was totally on board with that. Um, it didn't happen in the end, but that's just an example of how you do have to let go and let them do something different. Because the character would be different 10 years on. Mm. He wouldn't be as sprightly and agile. And he would have had another 10 years hiding away from the world. So mm. anyway, that's an example of them wanting to do something different. Because I agree with you, you do have to see it as a different thing. For a minute there, I thought you were saying they were looking at Tom Cruise today. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I can't, He'd be I can't. way too hot. He'd I was like, be way I can't too make it hot. work. <laughs> I know 
although funnily enough, there was a conversation about does it have to be a straight actor? Mm, and I said, sorry, does it have to be a gay actor? And I said, controversially, no, I think he can be a straight actor because the point is he's lived as a straight man for so long. Nobody's ever um, mm. spotted that he's gay. Well, most people haven't. And... Um, and he even think he doesn't even think of himself as gay. So actually, um, I was perfectly happy to have a straight actor. But anyway, that doesn't seem to be happening for now. For now, for now, let's <laughs> <laughs> send it out to the to the world and hope that it one day will manifest itself. So before we came on, we were talking about reading and book recommendations, and I was saying, you know, I'm a huge fan of your books, Autobuy for sure. But when you recommend books as well on your social media, I'm quite often coming away and writing them down like I must read that. Who are your autobi authors or books that authors that you always recommend to people? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I always read the new Lisa Jewell. Mm. I think on the level of plot and structure and craft, she's brilliant. Um, I have a lot of autobi authors, actually. Kate Atkinson, I love. Mm. Um, but I also like reading new authors. I've just, I didn't, because I was writing a first draft when you last spoke to me and I was slightly buried away, I find it hard to read and immerse myself in another fictional world. Um, but I've finished that now and I've just read a couple of books back to back by authors I've never read before. And I loved them. And I quite like discovering new authors. So one is Freya North, the unfinished business of Edie Brown that I loved. And the other is Chrissy Man Manby writing as CJ Ray, a book called The Excitements. I love that book. Isn't it great? It's so good. Isn't it great? I love both of them. And I haven't read Freya, but I, The Excitements Freya's I book loved. is fantastic. I'll have to add it. Freya's book is fantastic. It's set in Manchester, um, like Matt, and it's coming out around the same time. We're doing a few events together, which is what prompted me to read it. Yeah. It's brilliant. But the excitements, I mean, Chrissy Manby's written loads of books and bestsellers, but she's writing for the first time as this under this pseudonym. Mm. So it's quite nice to be able to bring people's attention to somebody they may not have discovered before, but it's a fab book, isn't it? I loved it. I loved it. And you're right. I love having autobi authors. And like, um, but I love it also when you read something new, be it a debut, but I think there's, I've just read um, that Bone Setter Woman by Frances Quinn. Oh. And I'm literally like all, like the, her other one, The Smallest Man, and she's got a new one coming out, have gone straight into my basket. Because I was like, oh, whatever she writes, I'm reading. <laughs> I love it. I love it when you find something new. It's so exciting. I do. Mm. I do. Um, so, yeah, and um, and actually, and funnily enough, when you get a name in publishing for writing a certain type of book, then when those books are coming out, you get sent them by publishers asking you for quotes. Mm. And um, that's partly the reason I paused when you asked me about autobuy, because I have to stop myself from buying books because I've got so many to read, and you do feel a responsibility to help if you can particularly when it's queer authors trying to establish themselves. Um, but I sometimes, even with um, somebody like Kate Atkinson, I'll have to stop myself from auto-buying because I've got a pile I've said I'll try and quote for. Mm. I've know. set up a challenge on Instagram this year to for the TBR, the TB Red, 
I'm starting this year with over 300 unread books. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I know. So I should really take that advice and, like, not be, like, auto-buy. <laughs> but everyone in the groups, I've set up, like, a little support group to see if we can read from our shelves. Everybody in the group has massive... Um, TBRs as well but so far I think everyone's been buying books and we're only what is it the 8th of January <laughs> so... well it's difficult isn't it because I don't want to persuade people not to buy books because exactly. I'm hoping they're all by mine <laughs> exactly yes everyone must definitely add yours <laughs> so we touched on then talking about the different um actually I'm not going to say that because it's going to ruin your bookish secret but you have when we asked about bookish secrets you sent me a list of bookish secrets and I was like Matt that's a, a whole episode <laughs> of like the secrets <laughs> of Matt Cain which would be brilliant but there's one secret you're going to share with us today which I'm so excited to hear about. So when I um, was struggling to get the Madonna of Bolton published what I can't remember if I told you this last time one publisher said to me um, nobody wants to read gay books with gays and the central characters, but if you write female characters with gay best friends, you can have subplots. And um, I did, I went away and wrote a rom-com called Shot Through the Heart. And um, then they persuaded me to go a bit more bonk buster with my next book, which was called Nothing But Trouble. And um, the first one sold all right. The second one didn't sell. I have to say they didn't do a very good job with it at all. Um, but with novels, you have to be... When a book comes out, it's quite... It can pull you in different directions emotionally. So they always say, have your next one done and ready to go by the time it comes out. And my publisher pushed back nothing but trouble actually they partly buried it in the schedule which is one of the reasons it didn't succeed not that i'm bitter <laughs> but in that time i'd got on with writing the next one and they wanted me to keep it kind of sexy and glamorous but go a bit more psychological thriller and because i'd had a name for myself because i'd been the arts correspondent on channel 4 news the idea was i'd set books in the worlds that I knew. So the first first one, Shot Through the Heart, was set in the film business. Second one, Nothing But Trouble in the music business. And the third one was in the ballet world. So it's, um, it's about two ballerinas who are sisters, but become rivals when they start dancing for the same company. They fall in love with the same man, and they're targeted by these anonymous, anonymous death threats as they approach the premiere of their new show. And... I called it Stepsisters. Um, lots of dance things have the word step in the title, but this was Stepsisters. And it was exploring it, it was exploring sibling rivalry, actually. There was a lot about um, unreliable narrators, which I really had liked at the time from a lot of the psychological thrillers. And I had quite a few close friends, I still do, who danced for the Royal Ballet. And although I set it for in a fictional company, a fictional dance company, the director of the Royal Ballet let me go behind the scenes for two weeks. Oh, wow. And I went everywhere, from the shoe room to the costume store, to the um, room where they do the guns for on stage, because there was a whole plot thing with a gun. And um, they let me do everything. Dressing rooms, it was brilliant. And um, I spent a year writing this book. I'm so proud of it. 
a friend of mine who was a fiction buyer for a major retailer thinks it's the best one I've done. And um, I absolutely loved it. But what happened was I had a bad track record for sales. So um, first of all, my publisher at the time dropped me, even though they'd greenlit this book, they just dropped me. And nobody else would take me on because I had a bad sales track record. And I tried saying to them, oh, well, my publisher only got 500 copies of Nothing But Trouble in the stores. How's that supposed to become a hit? Mm. But um, nobody cared. So I had this book that I felt really passionately about that I'd worked so hard on that people had told me was good. And actually, the frustrating thing about that was when publishers got back about it, some of them said, oh, this kind of... um, sexy glamorous thriller maybe isn't selling so much at the moment but they pretty much all said oh we really like it it's really good but he's got a bad sales track record and um they wouldn't take me on so that's when i got the job editing attitude magazine i needed a reinvention in um full madonna style and so i channeled Madonna with all her various reinventions, as I do throughout the book, The Madonna of Bolton, and I reinvented myself as a magazine editor. God knows how I persuaded the boss of Attitude to let me edit the magazine, because I'd never worked for a magazine in my life. And got myself back in the game, and then crowdfunded The Madonna of Bolton when I had that profile again. So that was having to kind of roll with the punches. But I still have this... um, sadness and tragedy that um, my second book wasn't really given a full release and my well I always call the Madonna Bolton my first book because it's the first one I wrote Mm. but um, nothing but trouble was just buried and then stepsisters was dumped so I have this whole book I do sometimes think if things really take off um, I'd quite like to publish those three books again maybe under a pseudonym like MJ Kane rather than Matt Kane is a kind of diffusion line. You know, like Armani have, Armani and Emporio Armani. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a kind of, um, so it's a twist. I mean, they're all, they're, they're lighter and more fun and more plot driven, but they're, um, they have the same values and the same themes. What do you think? I would love to read that. When this came through and you were like, oh, I've written a thriller about ballet. I'm like, <laughs> I know, I know, and every, it's so it's so commercial. Yeah. It's so like, um, but basically because I had a bad sales track record, nobody would go near me, and that wasn't even my fault. I was writing the books my publisher had told me to write, and then they dumped me. But that's what happens. Um, they, it's never anybody else's fault. It's always your fault. So um, anyway, I think we I'm probably campaign to have. I know. Well, I'm probably being too. I'm probably being indiscreet and telling you too much. Um, I won't yeah, tell my... anyone, <laughs> <laughs> apart from people listening. <laughs> but that's my bookish secret. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. I hope one day that we get to read those. I think that's so. And I find I always do think it's really interesting when writers do something different, like um, and surprise you. So I would love to see that. I mean, keep well, doing what you're doing, obviously, because they're thank amazing. You. But thank I'm... you. And I am, and I do have that um, in my back pocket. As soon as the Madonna of Bolton crowdfunding campaign did so well. Before the book was out, I went to my publisher from the, those books and said, can you take Shot Through the Heart and Nothing But Trouble out of print and give me the rights back? Oh. And they did. 
Oh, fabulous. Um, so they belong to me again. So I basically thought if I'm doing something different, I don't want anything to be confusing. So um, I'll take them off the market, take them out of print, and if and it's down to me if anything happens to them again. So let's see. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, it has been just wonderful to chat to you again. I have loved hearing all about your life as a reader and writer and your secrets and these books we've got to look forward to. It's been wonderful. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you very much. Thank oh. you to you, Helen. You've been great. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Wasn't it inspiring to hear Matt talk about how he overcame that rejection? And I don't know about you, but I would absolutely love to read Stepsisters. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could take the time to rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends about it. I'll be back next month talking to another author and I really hope that you'll join me again for that one. Thanks for listening and chat to you soon.